Welcome to Jewish Boy Calls His Mother. I'm your host, Sadia, and this is my mother, Ima. Hey, Ima. Yes, I'm trying to make my face look as thin and smiley as possible because I know we're being videotaped now. Great. Now you're being self-conscious. Fantastic. Which I which I don't like. It's okay, Ima. It's fine. It happens to everybody. Um, so in this week's topic is problems you had with Judaism when you were younger, like a teenager and young adult, and the solutions you've realized over the years. Uh, we talked about this earlier, but we were hoping you could, I'll start you off. Uh, you were talking about um, how when you were younger and you hung out with your home and your friends' homes where they would have a kosher kitchen, but they'd eat crabs outside, you know, uh, in the barbecues and whatnot. And you felt that that wasn't something that didn't make any sense to you. Or the idea that kashras uh, was something that you did for health reasons, and there wasn't any spirituality in that concept, or in Judaism in general. Right, yeah. It was very, very sad. When I was growing up in the 1950s, um, there, was no, there was no spirituality connected to Judaism. I mean, Chabad, yes, Chabad was in the United States, but somehow they had not, they had not spread, they had not really... Um, taken hold or had the influence that they have today. And um, there were a lot of um, misconceptions about Judaism. It was like, everything was like very, very cut and dry. They, um, I told you in that conversation that um, when I was in college, I was reading in my history book about the emergence of mystical religions and they did not name Judaism. They named Zoroastrianism, they named Buddhism, they named Hinduism, uh, they named Christianity, but they did not name Judaism. And so I was having a conversation with this cantor at the time. Uh, he was a cantor at um, my parents' conservative temple. And I mentioned something about how it's a pity that Judaism does, seems to lack this mysticism that's so cut and dry. And he said, oh, he said, you'd be surprised, he says, if you delve more into Judaism, you're going to find that it is very mystical. And I asked him, like, how so? And he, of course, he couldn't explain it because obviously he had never, you know, nobody knew, even heard of Tanya, even heard of, like, your know, books about Jew, Jew, Jewish mysticism. They, um, and also I, I felt like the, the uh, Orthodox Jewish community in Baltimore was how can I say, very cloistered. They really kept to themselves. They're, they, I think they were afraid of assimilation. And so they, like your father reminiscing about that said that when he saw Orthodox Jews, he saw them either at the bowling alley <laughs> or coming to his house to collect. But he says to be invited for a Shabbos, to be invited to see a real yunta. They, they did not do that. So I grew up, um, I, I, I observed uh, some Orthodox Jewish kids that were attending the public school. And quite honestly, I was so happy that I wasn't an Orthodox Jew at the time because I felt very sorry for them. The girls, of course, you know, had to dress sinuously. And no matter what the weather, no matter how hot it was, they had to wear long sleeves. They could not participate in a lot of the Friday night sports and the Friday night dances. That was totally out to them. They couldn't sing in the choir. 
especially holiday time, you know, with all the Christmas carols and everything. And I was just so happy that on the way I could, I could eat what I want. I could dress however I want. I could go wherever I want and not be, you know, quote unquote restricted. And a lot of people in those days, when they looked at Judaism, they didn't look at it from a side of spiritual fulfillment. They looked at it as a bunch of restrictions that didn't make sense. Yeah. And there was also the idea that Jewish women and girls, quote unquote, were subservient and couldn't express themselves or give their opinion, you know, had, and were, and, you know, and had to be like subservient to the men in their family, which after I became from found out was a total fallacy, 100% total fallacy. And you can see, you know, and when I look at like some of the movies and some of the propaganda that's out there, which paints Orthodox Judaism in a bad light, they, like I said, it's propaganda. It's, it's, they, they try to, you know, portray the Jewish woman as being, like I said, you know, very, very subservient, very mousy, and nothing could be further from the truth. I'll tell you a funny story that happened. Um, as I was becoming from, one of the things that made me reluctant about being from, as I was, you know, starting, I started to keep Shabbos and Kashras, and I was starting to go to Orthodox Jewish people in our neighborhood, you know, who were Chabad, who invited me for Shabbos. But I didn't know if I wanted to totally make the plunge because I was afraid of that. I was afraid of becoming a mousy Orthodox Jewish woman that was that would be subservient, you know, to my husband. And then I had Shabbos over this woman's house. She, this woman was hysterical. This woman was very assertive. And she and her husband got into some sort of argument at the table. And she laid it into her husband. She opened up her mouth. What was the and argument? I, said, I forgot what it was, but I said, wow, this woman is terrific. You know, I said, now I see I can be orthodox and I don't have to be mousy and I can mouth off to my husband, too. So um, <laughs> many years later, after your father and I married, we were talking about the I guess you would call it the, they call it in non Hasidic groups, the Kirov movement. Of course, Chabad was the one that started the whole ball rolling. And so we were talking about the efforts that Chabad was making at the time to try to educate and to attract you know, non-religious Jewish people. So this, this woman said at the, at the Shabbos table to, you know, to me and your father, I never macarved anybody in my life. And I said to her, oh, yes, you did. And she said, who? Who don't macarve? I said, me. And I told her that I was afraid of becoming from because I thought that as a woman I would have to be subservient to my husband but then when I came to your Chavez table and I saw the way you opened up your mouth to your husband wow I said that totally macarred me so she turned to your father and she said to him you are indebted to me for life <laughs> um so are these people still married Unfortunately, her husband died a while ago. Oh, okay, okay. He died. Yeah, he died. Sad, yeah. I was like, maybe he got divorced or something. No, um, no, thank God. No, they 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 stayed married to the very end. She, in fact, uh, she took she took care of him. Oh wow! Very end. Yeah. Jeez, just just the way I took care of your father. Yes, yes, yes. His famous last words: "I love you very much." <clears throat> uh, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna say what it's fine. Let's go on. Move forward. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Uh, it's what funny because you were talking about religious mysticism, 
Jew, uh, Jewish mysticism. And like, I have a story from the Baal Shem Tov that I love um, just about the perspective of Judaism and what it really means to be a Jew. And the story goes, uh, some, uh, a chassid of the Baal Shem Tov asks the Baal Shem Tov, um, he wants to see Eliyahu Navi. So the Baal Shem Tov says, okay, we're going to wait till Pesach time. And at the time of Pesach, I want you to get a wagon, strap it with all sorts of food and blanket and clothing and all sorts of supplies. And I want you to go into this far off village and look for this hut. And goes, sure enough, he's like, I want you to just go there and 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 and, and spend Pesach there and, and, and you'll see Elio and Avi. So they went ahead and he went to this hut and this, this, there's this poor woman with a child and he showed up and he had all this food for them and whatnot and was able to help them out with Pesach and get everything going and then he had Pesach with them and then after he had Pesach with them he you know he didn't see Elio and Abi, so he got up and he left and he went to the Baal Shem Tov and he's like well I didn't see Elio and Abi. he said well I want you to go there again next year and this time with all this food and supplies, but before you show up, I want you to kind of hide behind the road and and just try to 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 just to sit there and observe them. Uh, and then and you'll 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 see Eliyahu. So he goes to the village, goes to the goes near the the uh, the small hut, and he of course parks his stuff, makes sure no one sees him. He goes behind the hut, he just listens, and he's waiting for Eliyahu. And then he hears the son speaking to the mother. And the mother's like, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know what we're going to do for Pesach. We, we Seriously, we have nothing. And the little boy says, don't worry. Elio and Abby will come like he did last year, and he'll bring everything in. And it's that it's that that story of like, what is Elio and Abby? How do you understand Elio and Abby? And that Aww. kind of story that, the Baal, that I heard about the Baal Shem story, which asterisk, by the way, any Baal Shem Tov story, if you believe all of them, you're an idiot. If you believe none of them, you're a heretic. So just take it with a grain of salt. I, th- I think I'm an idiot. <laughs> I'm, one, <laughs> I'm, one of these, I'm, I'm one of these people, Saj. You can sell me the Brooklyn Bridge any day of the week. I'm sorry. I'm very gullible. Speaking of the oh, Brooklyn Bridge, so I have this location. <laughs> so that's, that's, that's like a, a Jewish mysticism story for me that just, for me, it, it means a lot of what Judaism is is you know we think it's this giant man in the sky or we think it's this giant big rabbi with all sorts of powers making a giant clay man it's just like it's the average person doing the average things and how much that shines you know exactly that's a that is a that's that's a that's a very beautiful story the way you summed it up was really nice thank you i appreciate it it's absolutely beautiful um but yeah, so what kind of mysticism stories did you learn? Did you hear any stories when you were a kid? Any Jewish Jewish stories when you were younger? Let me say, well, <laughs> when I was in Hebrew school, we used to read uh, the Katantan. What's that? <laughs> okay. It was um, cat. Got the, yeah, the cat over here is uh, oh, sitting on my lap. Yeah, there she is. Um, it was... It, it was like a Jewish Tom Thumb. It was about this. It was a, it was a series of 
it was a series of stories in a book. I forgot who wrote it, but would you believe it was published through the conservative, I guess the Union of Conservative Synagogues at the time. Interesting. And what we found interesting, your father and I, um, we didn't know it at the time when we were kids that it was published through a conservative Judaism public you know, publication. But they kept Shabbos, they kept Kasherus, they kept the Yamim Tovim, and it was quote unquote conservative. This book, I think it was written during the 40s or the late 40s, something like that. And it was about a woman who had no children. She prayed to God that I, I please just give me a child. I don't care if he's no bigger than my thumb. And her prayers get answered. And um, she has a son who's no bigger than her thumb. And of course, there's all sorts of adventures that he has. Like she's making humantashin and she's making shakmanas packages. And one of the shakmanas packages is going to go to a family who the little boy is in bed very ill, very sick. And Katantan thinks that her chopping knife looks like a lot of fun to ride on. So he jumps on it, he starts riding on it, and she doesn't notice it. He gets mixed up in the mun, in the homentation. And when the package goes to the family and they put the package in front of the little boy, they, you know, they're, they're hoping that this will cheer him up since he's sick. And Katantan jumps out of the home and and all covered with mud and starts dancing and singing in front of him. And it makes him well. But that, that was an example of like one of the, it was called The Adventures of Katantan. Um, I'm trying to think what other stories we had. We had, um, uh, unfortunately, we, we had, there were Holocaust stories. It was the very famous Holocaust story that they told us about Hanukkah with the men I don't know which concentration camp they were in, but how they were very, very lucky. And instead of eating these potatoes that they gave them, the men saved the potatoes and they were able to squeeze out oil from the potatoes and they were able to take threads from their concentration camp uniforms and they were able to, like the Hanukkah, to make their own little uh, you know, menorah, Hanukkah, and they lit the Hanukkah candles. And the, this man who was like, I'd say the leader of the group, tells them, you know, don't lose hope. You'll see. We're going to make it out of here. We're going to be okay. And the following Hanukkah was when their concentration camp was liberated. And all those men that were in that particular barracks that lit this makeshift menorah survived. Did you meet any Holocaust survivors when you were a kid? Uh, yeah, I had some. I had some friends who uh, I had one friend in particular who her parents were Holocaust survivors, With and um, I, 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 I don't know what their I don't know what their story was, but all I know is that my mother told me that they were um, that they were Holocaust survivors, um, and uh, they worked very hard. They had a store. Mm-hmm. And what I can't get over about, um, well, when I got older, of course, when I went, I went to Bay's Rift, I, I met Nisa Mengel. Okay. You know, he, he survived Auschwitz. Everybody, you know, if you knows Nisa Mengel, that he survived Auschwitz. I had a chance to talk to him. Nisa Mengel? Yeah, Nisa Mengel. Yeah, he taught one of our classes at Bay's Rift, and I was able actually to talk to him. And I, what I can't get over is 
how these people, like not just the Holocaust survivors, um, when I was in Israel, the people I, the cab drivers I met, store owners, cab drivers who fought in the 48 war. Oh, wow. And went through, you know, tremendous things. I saw um, in Crown Heights, I saw this woman who owned a store, um, a confectionery store, who still had the numbers on her arm. Oh, wow. And how these people can go through what they did and then get their lives together and become just ordinary, you know, just lead ordinary lives. So, you know, set up businesses, um, you know, raise families, and just ordinary people, you know, like the, like the cab drivers in Israel, some of them Holocaust survivors, and then on top of that later, fighting in the 48 war. And after all that, you know, hair raising, um, you know, survival experience, to settle down to an ordinary day-to-day existence, I, I I couldn't get over that. I would think that's probably something they've they've dreamed of, and that's what they wanted. Like that was their goal. You know, it's like they don't want this lack, for better words, adventure. They wanted a simple life, but their life got thrown a few curveballs that they had to deal with while still trying to reach this goal of having, you know, a spouse and children and raising a family, mm-hmm. you know? And it's like, if you have that goal, you're just, a lot of times people just get tunnel vision and they just need to focus on that goal to keep them alive. I think Victor Frankl said that, you know, that's how a lot of people survived was because they had a, a, a reason to, they had to have the people that survived were the ones that had a dream to go, to go towards, um, and the people that died were the ones they felt they had nothing else left to live. And that was the that was the thing Victor Frankl had when he was talking about uh, man's search for meaning. You know? Um, but at, out of curiosity, though, what moments did you have that you were that you had when you were a child that you realized you want to pass this on to your children? And did you or did you not succeed? in doing that that's a really good question because on the much i often thought i wanted to pass on to my children the um the idea of um not being defeated don't take a defeatist attitude yeah and keep trying keep trying don't take a defeatist attitude don't be a victim and also to be not to be kind i couldn't stand like you know everyone goes through you know everyone who's go goes to school has a run-in with some bull with bullies at one yeah. time or another. It's unfortunately it's part of growing up. And believe me, I'm on I had plenty run-ins with kids that were just, I don't know, they were they were sadistic. Yeah, they were just, just nasty. Mean. And I didn't I never wanted my kids to be mean. I wanted them always to be nice. As a matter of fact, you know, you you kids were known for being kind of on the wild side. But one of the principals, um at whose office there was a chair with my name on it. <laughs> <laughs> um, commented to me, he says, you know, he says, your kids, yeah, he says, your kids are not the typical, you know, from kids. Your kids are on the wild side. But he said, but you know what? He says, as wild as your children are, they're nice. Yeah. He says, they're kind. They're nice. He said, as a principal, he had had a lot of experience with kids that were just rotten, just mean. Yeah. And he says, your kids, your kids in all their wildness um, were never mean. 
what about sharing a moment? Like, for instance, this might seem a little cheesy or silly, like watching a TV show that you loved as a kid um, or going to a park that you loved as a kid or, you know, singing a song that you loved when you were a kid and be able to like share that with your children or any other hobbies that you had to share that with your children? I, I remember there were some songs that I, that I gave over to you children, but I, uh, I koshered them. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, they were more of a Goisha, you know, uh, Christian bent. So I, I'm trying to think. Yeah, the Jewify them. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, let the sun shine in. Yes. Yes. That, that I, I koshered that one because it's it's really it's it's really a Christian song. It is. So, um, you know, it, they say they, there's a verse, verse in it. When I forget my prayers, the devil smiles with glee, but he feels so awful, awful when he sees me on my knees. So I changed it to when I forget my prayers, the Itahara smiles with glee, but he feels so awful, awful when I say Modani. Yeah, that, that actually fits perfectly. Um <laughs> But and the, then there was the one song. Um, there was there's a Burl Ives song, which it's not really, really supposed to be for Christmas. It can be it can be like a general secular song. That was the one you know, about a father giving a gift to his son, mm-hmm. and then the son giving the gift to his son. It was one when I was just a wee little boy. Oh yes, I remember that song. Bop yeah. when it moves, zip when it stops, world and it sits still. Yeah, I never knew just what it was, and it I guess was, I, I guess never so. will. Yeah, like somebody, yeah. um, some there's someone who told me, oh, that I, uh, that that's uh, supposed to be like a Christian Christmas song. I said, no, it's not. It's you no, know, it could be any kind of um, secular song about giving a gift. Yeah. To their to their yeah. child. I'll tell you another. By the way, a very interesting song that they sing for Christmas, which is not a Christmas song. Jingle bells. Yeah. I was yeah. doing a history of it's Jingle a winter bells. Song. It's a winter song. It's a winter song. Written by two Jews in California. Very funny. <laughs> no, I'm being serious. Jingle Bells. I think Jingle Bells was written by two Jews in California. Look, Google it. But anyway, it said it's just a winter song. It's like a secular winter song. It was never, ever intended as a Christmas song. Yeah, I guess. Um, but. Do you want to go we... back to my to my uh, my opinions of Judaism? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> sure. Um. So uh, I think I'm pretty much sums it up, you know. Um, oh, I said the story. Did, did, did we talk, tell the story about my brother-in-law and my reform friends learning oh. about Kashrus and their temples? Okay. By the way, the reform movement has changed a lot. Yes, it has. So I noticed we're that. Not, yeah, you know, really, it has. They, um, I, I got a job in the 1980s teaching at a reform temple because the principal there used to like to hire. Orthodox Jewish teachers, because she said they they have information. They know what they're talking about. She says these, you know, Reformed and Conservative teachers that are coming out of the Reformed and Conservative seminaries really do not know that much about Judaism. And so that was the a few years before that. Every few years, the Reform, I guess it was like a conclave of Reformed Jewish leaders, and they put out their platform. So the new platform that they put out in like the beginning, mid-1980s was that, yes, they are going to teach more Hebrew with an Mm -hmm. emphasis on Hebrew reading. Yes, they are going to teach the laws of Kashrus. 
And yes, they are going to teach about bris mila, and they're going to teach about the steps of a Jewish wedding, and they're going to teach about Shabbos. With the idea that as educated Jews, you need to know these things, and it's up to you, you know, what you want to do when, when you make your own decisions, whether or not you want to take this on. So I was teaching during, you know, during that time. So anyway, but before then, when I was growing up in the 50s and 60s, I had some friends that were reformed, that were going to, you know, reform Hebrew school. And I heard this from them. And then later when my sister got married, I heard this from her first husband who was raised very, very reformed. And it was, oh, that the reasons for kosherists do not apply now. That the reasons for kosherists is because uh, years ago in Europe, they use wooden bowls. And so if you had meat in them, that the meat would get like in between the fibers of the wood and would ferment. And then if you added milk to that, so then the milk would mix with that and ferment and it would be, it would create bacteria that was very unhealthy. But now we have glassware and we have porcelain and um, we don't you know, have to worry about that anymore. And I heard this over and over and over again. Well, finally, when I was um, when I was in co in college, I heard again the whole spiel from my then brother-in-law, and I said to him, "Hey, I bet you've never been to a museum, have you?" He says, "Of course, I've been to a museum." I said, "Oh, then you didn't notice the beautiful glassware from ancient Greece and Rome, and weren't the Jews keeping kosherists then?" And he went, uh, uh, like I, like I, like I took a sledgehammer. It just broke his age old. Belief. Yeah. It's like, it's like, it's like, um, it's like when you find out, like, you know, trying to think, I'm trying to think of something, but like, oh, good one for, for, for you. When you find out not keeping Chalvistral doesn't mean you're eating trafe, you know? So. Mm -hmm. It's 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 kind of funny. Oh, by the way, Jingle Bells was written by a Confederate soldier. <laughs> oh, I wish that were in the land the cat. No, yeah. Oh, by the way, Dixie was written by a Northerner. Really? <laughs> yeah. That's funny. That's funny. She's the way. That was in the land the cat. Old times there. You want to do something funny? I had a friend. Yeah. Who um, in Baltimore, who you know, Orthodox Jewish, you know, when I was when I was already from, and she got married in Baltimore and she had a lot of relatives that came down from New York for her wedding. And I they did this probably just to impress the New York crowd. They actually played Dixie and danced <laughs> around with Confederate flags. I said, what the heck are they doing? We don't do this. This is not, this is not done in Baltimore. This might be done in um, Alabama or something or Tennessee, but this has never been, <laughs> they don't play Dixie and, and dance with Confederate flags and weddings in Baltimore. Yeah, it was written by a guy from Ohio. <laughs> I guess yeah. they wanted to make the northern, you know, the northerners feel like, oh boy, we're in the real south now. Well, like well, one of well, one of um your sister's in-laws when she first met me, she said, "Oh, you speak with a southern accent." <laughs> no, it's a Baltimore drawl where we mumble everything and we say our o's really strong. Yeah. Oh, oh sorry, we're going back to um Kashras. So um, I got to the point in high school when I studied biology. Yeah. Where I appreciated kosherists 
for, you might say, health reasons. It made a lot of sense to me, like not to mix meat and milk because I reasoned to myself, hey, you know, meat is a very complicated amino acid. And if you drink, eat milk products or drink milk along with this meat, you're dumping one complicated amino acid on top of another complicated amino acid. And that's going to be hard on the digestive system. So I got to the point where if I would have something um, like with meat, at least I wouldn't drink or eat any milk products with it. I just thought Jews had bad digestive tracts and having milk and meat would just be like, <laughs> oh, it's terrible. My getchkas, it's just a waste. Now, if you, if you want to read a really good book, have you ever read The Royal Table by Aria Kaplan? Royal Table. No. Royal Ta You've got to read it. It is beautiful. It talks about the mysticism of kosherists and how we believe that everything you eat obviously becomes part of you and affects your spirituality and affects your psychological makeup because it becomes mm -hmm. part of your blood and affects your like your your whole state sense of being and it goes to how it shafted how it's prepared and that everything has a certain spirituality around it interesting yeah like um, he was talking about and the animals like you know kosher animals are not animals of prey that for the most part they're gentle animals unless you get unless you get kicked kick to chase by a bull yeah <laughs> no, but we're talking about you know non-kosher animals have claws and they they rip their they they're animals of prey and they rip their uh, uh they rip their kill up like well, that you know actually there was a whole issue with turkey um because when turkey was discovered they weren't sure if it was a kosher animal or not and some of the rabbis went ahead and saw that the, a turkey was chasing a mouse and they were going to determine it that it wasn't um a proper kosher animal but i think it had to do with the 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 feet like a kosher animal uh the way its feet is set up comparatively to the way a non-kosher animal's feet there's a difference between the way it's the way it's it's spread and the way it perches um mm -hmm. I, i'd have to go back and yeah like a hawk at... well, it's, that's you know, a hawk you know yeah anything like a hawk or an owl has those talons yes that are built for ripping yes that's the whole thing ripping you know like um, tearing them so what i was going to say was um so the, do you have any, do you have any core like interesting or fun or delightful or good memories you had as a child that like you felt you know you wanted to have and share that with your with your children? <laughs> You're not talking about the Hanukkah debacle, are you? What Hanukkah debacle? Remember, I mentioned it to you last week off the air. And you said, oh, I should have put that on the program. I said, well, it's not very, it's not a very nice memory. Oh, that, no, 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 I'm not talking about that. No, no, I'm talking about like, I don't, I don't know. Like, I'll give you an example. Like an example. Okay, this is something Tati, I noticed Tati did. First off, Tati loved sharing his TV shows he watched when he was a kid. Second off, he loved buying us toys that he remembered he had when he had it when he was a kid. You know, uh, he, he, he wanted to share his childhood with us uh, on some level. Um, did you have anything like that that you tried to share with us um, that we just didn't appreciate or notice or we did and it was something that you felt, you know, was like your claim to fame where you felt accomplished with raising us? Um, 
Mm, I'm trying, man, that is a that is a really complicated question. That man, I'm you trying. You got like to... seven minutes left. It's fine. Take your time. <laughs> oh gosh, <laughs> what did I do? Well, you tell me. Did did I ever do that? I love the song. I loved your Motown songs. I love the Motown songs you used to sing. I love the Beatles songs you used to sing. You introduced me to so much music. Um, you introduced me to wanting to to play music. Um, it's it's kind of why for me music is my life. Like it literally is my life. It's just I can't can't live without it. Um, I guess I'm trying to think. Um, I, I wouldn't. St- know any movies or tv shows you kind of shared with us i don't think you ever did that but it was always like the lessons like i remember being you know a little kid and trying to read 20 pasukim on a shabbos afternoon and that used to just drive me up the freaking wall um and and used to like work with me but the frustrating thing and this is like a boomer teacher thing where it's like the kid's not getting it. Like repeating yourself is not helping. I'm like, it would be like, what's this word mean? Uh, I don't know. What think? What does this mean? I don't know. I can't tell you. Think harder. Um, is it this? No, it's not that. What does this word mean? I'm like, you, you gotta help me out. Like, I'm on Duolingo right now. And what they uh-huh. teach you is like they give you the answers. You have to right. search for it, but they give the answers every time you go through everything. And when you get the answers, you retain the information better than just getting the answers none at all. And you're just trying to trying to guess or put things together or jerry rig, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I agree with you on that. by the way, t- my teaching techniques over the years have changed, especially now that I'm, I give music lessons now. Yeah. <clears throat> and a lot of the kids I give music lessons to, you know, are Orthodox Jewish kids that have a very, very demanding schedule. Oh, yeah. So they don't have much time to practice, especially now I'm going back to giving lessons after they've been off for the entire week for Hanukkah recess. Mm-hmm. And so all my students needed a a review of exactly what the, what the notes are. And so I have these music flashcards and I just go ahead and. Um, I just tell them, I said, this is a C, this is a D, and I put it in front of them. Now, what is this? Then we, then we review, and then I add more, and I add more. Like We review we review gradually, little by little by little by little, until they said now that at the end of the lesson, they t- they, they've told me that this was very constructive, that it really helped them to remember the notes. But I don't, I don't you know, at first I started by having them guess, and I realized I can't do that. I you know, I've got to just give them the answer and then review it and then repeat it. And then later on, they're able to remember it, to memorize it much better. Yeah. Yeah. Forced, forced memorization where it's like, just remember, just remember. It just doesn't, it doesn't work. It doesn't, No, I don't think it, you don't get the results that you really are looking for. The best, um, the best way is to get, is to give the information and re- repeat the information and repeat the information and then ask them to repeat it back to you a few times that that's much more effective would would irritate me when I was in college we used to get these professors where you would ask them a question saying like um something simple uh let's say like oh uh not not where was the battle of Stalingrad (laughs) 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 um like um uh who was like who okay like who was the last uh who was the last uh composer out of 1812's overture yeah something like that you know it's something 
And instead of just simply asking your, answering your question and giving the information, they would look at you and go, you mean you don't know that that was the composer of the 1812? If I knew, I wouldn't be asking you. It's these egotistical people that are self-centered, self-righteous, and think that they're the best thing to God, whatever. Um, <laughs> yeah, and I've dealt with those kind of professors as well. I've had one, and he was just a disgusting train wreck. I hope he, whatever. Um, <laughs> but speaking of teachers, uh, what were there any inspirational good teachers you had that you felt like you wanted to emulate when you became a teacher? Well, I didn't, I thought, I didn't occur, it didn't occur to me till actually a few weeks ago, how, you know, I'm, I'm working in a preschool setting. I bring my piano, I have my piano there in school, my electric keyboard. And no matter, and I've always tried to, um, you know, I play for the children. I've got my violin there too. I've been taking up my violin. And these are like little babies or little kids. Or some of them are growing into toddlers now. And it occurred to me, my first two teachers, both my kindergarten teacher and my first grade teacher played piano. Interesting. And when I was growing up, all the preschool, all the preschool rooms had pianos. There were pianos all over the school. The preschool teachers played them for the class. And my first grade teacher also had a piano in her room and she played for us. And then the occurred to me, I said, you know, I never realized how unconsciously I've emulated those two women by bringing music into where I'm work into the preschool setting, setting where I'm working. Yeah. And that's why and I think fact, it was... I, was, I was very surprised um, when one of my friends, um, I think she was in a different school and at the same school when she told me, Oh, that her nurse, that her kindergarten teacher doesn't play piano. She just puts on records for them. I go, what? I was shocked. I said, because to, to me, and all kindergarten teachers play piano. I couldn't imagine a kindergarten teacher or first grade teacher that didn't play piano and didn't have it in the room and play it for the kids. Yeah, I mean that's that's that, that's what I was talking about. Like something that like you inspire. Like you're not saying you do this on purpose, but it's like a a subconscious inspiration. You know, yeah. where you look back at your life, you're like, oh, I really did do that. Like, did your mother like listen to like old music that you really enjoy now? Like you still listen to? <laughs> the funny thing was my mother, uh, the big, the big rock and roll music station during the 1950s and 60s was a station called WCAO. And my mother had WC, WC was, was called a top 40 station. Mm -hmm. The top 40 stations played the top, just like that was the 40 most popular songs in the country at the time. And they had ratings. It was, num you know, the, uh, if it was very popular, it was number one, little less number two, little less number three. And you saw songs that would go, would climb the charts and make number one. And that's all you heard on the radio for weeks and weeks and weeks. And then gradually you heard less of it. And like people eventually got tired of it and hear less of it and less of it less of it. and then new songs would come in the and take its place well i remember one time when i when i was a teenager was when i really got involved in classical music i mean i would go to the library i took out um i would take out all of beethoven's nine symphonies by the nbc orchestra conducted by tuscanini that was my favorite 
Thank you for listening to Jewish Boy Calls His Mother. Please send us feedback and comments on our Facebook page, and like and subscribe on YouTube. I know I would like it, and my mother would too.